This is The Rounds Table. Hey, Rounds Table listeners. It's Kieran Quinn joining you again for another episode on the table here. More rapid fire coming at you as the new format hosts, and I just couldn't stay away. You know who else couldn't stay away? Is a familiar old face and voice, Dr. Emily Hughes, who's a first year resident in internal medicine and the producer of the Rounds Table when her and I were in charge. Emily, Welcome back to the show. Freilich Brothers, thank you for having us both back as always. So excited to be back here. And this time I am a resident, which is super exciting for me. And just like you, I guess I couldn't stay away from the show. Super excited to be welcomed back by the Freilich Brothers. So thank you guys again. Okay, let's jump in before they fire us. Emily, let's go. you got two articles to take us through, four for the show. Let's go. Awesome. So I'm chatting about COPD today. And really, I don't think I can go a day on the general medicine ward without seeing a patient with COPD. So, you know, we all know COPD is a leading cause of hospital admission, third leading cause of death worldwide. Lots of patients have exacerbations despite being on maintenance therapy. So new approaches to treatment are really needed. Uh, On this episode, I'm going to cover two trials that are hot off the press aimed to do exactly this. So the first paper I'm going to be talking about is Metoprolol for the Prevention of Acute Exacerbations of COPD, a Prospective Randomized Controlled Trial. Hang on a second. A beta blocker for the prevention of COPD? Weren't you always taught something different? I'm already intrigued. What do you got for us? What were they trying to answer in this study? I know, right? We give beta agonists usually as part of COPD treatment. So why would we give a beta blocker? But retrospective observational studies have shown mortality benefit of beta blockers in patients with COPD who take them for cardiovascular disease. However, as you've so rightly pointed out, systematic reviews have noted an underuse of beta blockers in people with COPD because of physicians' concerns of worsening lung function. So what this trial aimed to do was to put this controversy to rest and determine, could there be a benefit of beta blockers in patients with COPD, even in those without cardiovascular disease? Sounds crazy, which is why I love it. So what did they do to go about answering this question? So they designed a prospective randomized controlled trial. Adults aged between 40 to 85 who had moderate to severe COPD were assigned to either metoprolol or placebo. All of these patients had a clinical history of COPD, moderate airflow obstruction, and an increased risk of exacerbation, which was defined as a history of exacerbation in the past year or prescribed use of supplemental oxygen. Importantly, patients were excluded if they were already taking a beta blocker or if they had a previously established indication to take a beta blocker. And what were they measuring as far as the efficacy of these beta blockers in COPD? Yeah, so the primary endpoint was the time to the first COPD exacerbation within the treatment period, which was about a year. And some secondary outcomes they looked at were the rate of COPD exacerbations, all-cause mortality, hospitalization, results of spirometry, distance on the six-minute walk test, and shortness of breath measurements. That sounds like pretty standard COPD outcomes. So we're taking a trial of people with COPD who do not have another indication for a beta blocker. I think that's the key point here. And we're seeing if these beta blockers then prevent various important and commonly studied COPD outcomes. Do I have that right? Exactly. All right. So what did they find then? So first I'll just chat about what the patients looked like. So it was an even split between males and females around 65 years of age. Patients were 
generally Caucasian. They were current smokers with about a 50-pack year history. Most of them were on triple therapy with an inhaled glucocorticoid, a LAMA, and a LABA. And these patients, as we chatted about in the inclusion criteria, were at very high risk for exacerbation. So 90% or so had an exacerbation in the last year, and over 50% had moderate to severe COPD, characterized by an ED visit or a hospitalization in the last 12 months. And 40% of these were patients were receiving long-term oxygen therapy. So what did they find? So the trial was stopped early because of safety concerns and futility with respect to the primary endpoint. Uh-oh. Yeah, exactly. So there was no significant difference between the median time to first exacerbation was the first point. Second point was metoprolol was associated with a higher risk of severe exacerbation. So defined as exacerbation leading to hospitalization, as well as a higher risk of very severe exacerbation, defined as exacerbation leading to intubation and mechanical ventilation. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. And thirdly, there were more deaths in the metoprolol group compared to the placebo group. Uh-oh, that's the proverbial nail in the coffin, no pun intended there. So, sounds like the beta blockers, as we were taught always, aren't very good for people with COPD. I think you've exactly summed it up right with the nail in the coffin. So, you know, the take-home point here is that in patients with moderate to severe COPD who did not have an established indication for beta blocker use, the time to first exacerbation is the same in the metoprolol and placebo group, but the hospitalization for exacerbation is much more common in those taking metoprolol. So this trial does not provide any support for the use of beta blockers in such patients for the prevention of the exacerbation of COPD. But something I wanted to highlight here is that this population in this trial actually contrasts the patient population in most observational studies that have shown benefit with beta blockers in patients with COPD. So the patients in these observational studies that were not started on a beta blocker for their COPD they were actually already on a beta blocker for a different indication. Right. So you're getting a potentially a counterbalancing or beneficial effect from the beta blocker for likely their other comorbidities or indications. And we're not seeing the harm here in a context of that balancing measure, potentially. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like what I take away from this is I won't start a patient on a beta blocker for prevention of a COPD exacerbation, obviously. But if the patient has COPD and they're already on a beta blocker for an approved indication, then, you know, maybe this trial won't really deter me from keeping them on the beta blocker. However, like I will weigh the risk and benefit ratio carefully in patients with very severe COPD at high risk for exacerbations. Right. Remembering also that those patients who have the other indication were excluded from this trial. So the generalizability is limited in that sense, too. Fantastic. I think that's really unfortunate for the people who are involved in that trial to to undergo that. But at least we now have a definitive answer about the preventative ability of beta blockers in COPD. It's a no-go. What's your next article, Emily? Yeah, so my next article uh, is again looking at a preventative treatment for COPD exacerbations. And the article is titled Benrelizumab for the Prevention of COPD Exacerbations. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2019. Ah, here comes the MABs, the expensive MABs. What were they asking with this MAB? So what they were asking with this MAB is what is the safety and what is the efficacy of benralizumab, which is an IL-5 receptor monoclonal antibody for the prevention of exacerbations in patients with moderate to severe COPD. All right, Emily. So we're talking about MABs. You mentioned IL-5. I'm starting to sweat. My heart's racing. Tell me a little bit more about it. I'm not sure what's going on. 
So what it does essentially is it induces eosinophil depletion by antibody-dependent cytotoxic activity. So essentially the idea behind it is it'll reduce the eosinophils in the blood if eosinophils are related to COPD exacerbation. So currently it's approved for treatment of severe eosinophilic asthma, but not yet for COPD. Interesting. I think there's lots of literature that would support the role for eosinophils, at least in some severe aspects of COPD or perhaps some overlap syndrome. Okay, so tell me how they go about answering the question about the efficacy of this MAB. For sure. So there were actually two trials done, the Galathea trial and the Terranova trial, which were both phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled parallel group trials, which were combined together for this paper. So essentially what they did is that patients with moderate to very severe COPD were enrolled based on their eosinophil count, so greater than 220 per millimeters cubed. And these patients had frequent exacerbations despite receiving guideline-based inhaler treatment. Patients were randomly assigned to receive benralizumab or placebo, and they were excluded if they had a previous diagnosis of asthma that was considered to contribute to their current respiratory symptoms. Okay, sounds straightforward. And what did they find? So what they were looking for was the treatment effect of benralizumab, measured as the annual COPD exacerbation rate. What the patients looked like is they were about 65 years old. Most of them were male. Over 75% were Caucasian. And they were either current or former smokers. Over 60% of them were on triple therapy with an inhaled corticosteroid, a LABA, and a LEMA. On average, these patients had about two exacerbations in the last 12 months. The baseline eosinophil count for these patients was 450 per millimeter cubed. So essentially what they found was that add-on benralizumab was unfortunately not associated with a lower rate of COPD exacerbations than placebo among patients with moderate to very severe COPD, a history of severe exacerbations, and a blood eosinophil count greater than 220 per millimeter cubed. However, by week four and through to the end of the trial, benralizumab did result in a substantial depletion of blood eosinophils and a substantial decrease in sputum eosinophils. But this decrease in eosinophils did not correspond to a decrease in the rate of exacerbations. Well, I'm so glad that the eosinophil count came down, but unfortunately, nothing for the patients happened here, Emily. So what's your takeaway? So my takeaway is benralizumab is not effective for reducing exacerbation rates in COPD. Further, eosinophil depletion is probably unlikely to influence exacerbation outcomes for the majority of patients with moderate to severe COPD. Two negative trials. Well, let's see if we can turn this around with the next two articles that I'll present and see if we can be a little more positive. What do you think? All right, Karen, take my breath away. Well, the next trial that we're going to talk about is published in JAMA from Elizabeth Alexander and her group in September of 2019. This is a mouthful. I'm going to see if I can pronounce it right. It's brand new. It's called Oral lefamulin versus moxifloxacin for early clinical response among adults with community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. The LEAP-2 trial. I like it already. Tell me, what did they study in this trial? Well, lefamulin is a new kid on the block. The LEAP-1 trial studied IV lefamulin in pneumonia. The LEAP-2 trial, and the question for this trial, was whether five days of oral lefamulin was non-inferior to a seven-day course of oral moxifloxacin in the treatment of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. Sounds very interesting. And tell us why this trial is important. Well, this has been like the first new antibiotic for pneumonia in, in a while. And well, the issue is that we have growing antibacterial resistance to all of our standard antibiotics that were used. And that's partially because we're just sort of using them too broadly and probably inappropriately. 
There's also some safety concerns around what some of the guidelines would call standard of care, which is the use of fluoroquinolones in community-acquired pneumonia, at least in potentially in the United States. And those are obviously associated with increased risk for things like C. difficile. So we wanted to see if the new antibiotic, the new kid on the block, could be similar in its efficacy to, uh, or non-inferior in this case, to moxifloxacin. Absolutely makes perfect sense to me. So tell me, how did they design this trial? Pretty big study, a randomized non-inferiority trial at 99 sites in 19 countries. They looked at adults who were 18 years or older and had a pneumonia outcomes research team risk score called PORT, otherwise known as the Pneumonia Severity Index Score for some of you other folks who are familiar with that, of class 2, 3, or 4. And they had to have radiographically documented pneumonia, acute illness, three or more community-acquired pneumonia symptoms, and two or more vital sign abnormalities. Sort of a research way of saying, yes, you have bacterial pneumonia. And just so you know, if you're not familiar with the PSI or PORT score classifications, it's a clinical prediction score that predicts 30-day morbidity and mortality from pneumonia. If you have a score of four or five, you're recommended to be treated as an inpatient. Score four is associated with 8.5% rate of 30-day death. Score five is, or class five, is associated with 28% rate of 30-day death. Their outcomes were two primary endpoints that were separate. One was asked for by the FDA and one was asked for by the EMA, which is the European Medicines Association. And the FDA asked for early clinical response at 96 hours within a 24-hour window after the first dose of lefamulin or moxifloxacin, which was defined as being alive and showing improvement in two or more of the four symptoms related to pneumonia, having no worsening pneumonia symptoms, and not receiving any other antibacterial drug not part of the study for pneumonia episode. The EMA outcome was investigator assessment of clinical response at the test of cure between 5 and 10 days after the last dose of your antibiotic. The non-inferiority margin was set at 10%, and the secondary outcomes were things like medication and self-management tasks that were added or stopped, various diagnostic tests, referrals, and procedures ordered or avoided. Okay, and what did the patients look like who were in the study? Typical folks in this study were a 57-year-old male, 63% were less than 65 years old, so I think a little bit of a younger population than what I'm used to seeing in the general internal medicine ward, but maybe not so much in the outpatient setting, although this was a hospital study. They presented with fever and tachypnea, but not hypotensive and no tachycardia. 10% had COPD, it's a little bit lower than I think I'm used to seeing. 44% were current or prior smokers. Almost 50% of the patients in the trial had a port risk class of 3 or 4. The main results from the efficacy standpoint, they saw an early clinical response rates in 90.8% with the group treated with lefamulin. Yep, it works. And they saw 90.8% with moxifloxacin. So no difference, or in this case, lefamulin was non-inferior to moxifloxacin and both very high clinical response rates, as we would expect with antibiotics and community-acquired pneumonia. The rates of investigator assessments of clinical response, or that EMA outcome, was 87.5% with lefamulin and 89.1% with moxifloxacin. That met the non-inferiority endpoint. So the new kid on the block seems to work. 
It works for treating pneumonia. However, here's a good caveat. The safety outcomes. Diarrhea was common and present in about 12% of people treated with lefamulin and only about 1% in those with moxifloxacin. Nausea in about 5.2% of people with lefamulin and only 1.9% in moxifloxacin. So we did see some more significant side effects associated with the lefamulin than the moxifloxacin, at least in the shorter term. Okay, so... What do you take away from this? Well, as you said, it works. Woohoo! The new kid on the block is non-inferior. So if you treat people with five days of oral lefamulin, then it's just about as good as seven days as moxifloxacin with respect to your early clinical response at 96 hours after their first dose. But I would say use this as your in your back pocket or your ace in your sleeve or whatever the expression is. I mean, we got here and we got the need for this because we're using antibiotics inappropriately, we're using broad spectrum antibiotics, and resistance patterns are going up. So certainly we don't want to start using our new kid on the block and having resistance build to that quickly, so then we're right back where we started. Makes sense to me. Okay, Karen, what's your next article you'll be chatting about? Well, it's sort of a nice segue from the first article. This one was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in July of 2019 by Dr. Valerie Vaughn and her group. And it looks at excess antibiotic treatment duration and adverse events in patients hospitalized with pneumonia. It's almost as if I planned it this way. (laughs) Okay. And tell me, why is this trial important? Well, pneumonia is the most common reason for inpatient antibiotic use and overuse. I actually didn't know that. That was pretty interesting. Multiple recent randomized trials have demonstrated that shorter therapy is equally effective and safe for most patients. That I'm up to date on. So we wanted to know in this study who gets quote-unquote inappropriate antibiotics. And they asked the research question to examine the predictors and outcomes associated with excess duration of antibiotic treatment. Okay, very interesting research question. And, you know, how did they go about doing this? So this was not a randomized trial. This was a retrospective cohort study of 6,481 patients with pneumonia in 43 hospitals in the Michigan Hospitals Medicine Safety Consortium. People were excluded if they were admitted to the ICU. So a big caveat, this is community-acquired pneumonia, not so sick that you're ending up in the ICU. They are not immunocompromised, and they did not have complicated pneumonia, such as things with like an empyema or Legionella pneumonia. And obviously, you are included if you're an adult and you had pneumonia. Okay. And what did they find? So they measured the primary outcome as the rate of excess antibiotic treatment duration. And that was an excess days per 30-day period. How did they define that? Well, excess days were calculated by subtracting each patient's shortest effective or expected treatment duration, which was based on time to clinical stability, pathogen, and pneumonia classification, whether it was community-acquired or healthcare-associated, from the actual duration of their pneumonia. And they used the guidelines on what the duration of the antibiotic therapy should be. After that, they contacted patients by telephone for additional outcome data. In the end, the typical patient looked like a 70-year-old individual, male or female. 30% had coexisting heart failure, 46% had coexisting COPD, 67% were current or prior smokers, and 22% had cancer. Compared to our first study that I was discussing with you, this patient population is a little more familiar to me in the internal medicine service in Toronto here. 52% had class 4 or 5 pneumonia severity index, so this was a much sicker population of individuals. 75% had sepsis. 
Okay, so sick enough, but not sick enough to go to the ICU. Correct. Um, and what did they find? So two-thirds of patients, two-thirds, 67% of patients received excess antibiotic therapy beyond what the guidelines would say that they needed for their pneumonia. Antibiotics prescribed at discharge accounted for 93.2% of excess duration. So I'm imagining that patients are well enough to go home and the physicians are continuing to prescribe antibiotics after the patient leaves. I do that all the time. The predictors of excess antibiotic duration were patients who had respiratory cultures or other diagnostic testing that was non-culture-based, patients who had longer hospital stays, those who received a high-risk antibiotic in the prior 90 days, those were typically like fluoroquinolones, those who had community-acquired pneumonia as opposed to hospital or healthcare-associated pneumonia, or those who did not have a total antibiotic treatment duration documented at discharge. Adverse outcomes associated with this were not that common. So they did not find any association with excess treatment and any adverse outcome, including death, readmission, emergency department visit, or C. difficile infection. However, they did find that each excess day of treatment was associated with a 5% increase in the odds of antibiotic-associated adverse events reported by patients after discharge. So not documented in the chart per se, but when they called the patients after, they said that there was something going on that they attributed to the antibiotics. Those are some really interesting take-home points. You know, how will this change your practice and how should this change our practice going forward? Well, I think first and foremost, we should all be aware and recognize, remember, this is an observational retrospective study. These findings are not causal, they're associated. But the picture that I imagine as we're moving towards shorter and shorter antibiotic durations are if your patient is well enough to go home, they probably don't need antibiotics anymore. And that was where the excess antibiotic durations were found in this study, that patients were continued on antibiotics prescribed at discharge. And so I'm wondering whether if my patient feels well enough to go home and I feel that it's safe enough for them to leave the hospital, then maybe they just don't need to have the antibiotics after that. And per, I'm going to start thinking about that and talking to my patients about it at discharge for those admitted under my care with pneumonia. Yeah, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Well, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Emily, what's caught your eye in the medical news this week? So Karen, I'm going to stick with a respirology theme today. And something that's really caught my eye in the news over the past six months or so is all of these news stories related to severe lung disease related to vaping. And something that actually just came out on end of October this year was the Government of Canada statement on severe illness related to vaping. And I just pulled some key points from it that I thought I wanted to share on the show today. So number one, long-term effects of vaping are still unknown, but they are being investigated. Latest case information we have in Canada is five confirmed or very probable cases of severe illness related to vaping. So the advice to patients that the government of Canada has is essentially, you know, if you vape or have vaped in the past and have severe symptoms such as cough, shortness of breath, chest pain, go to a healthcare provider, let them know that you vape because that should obviously be taken into account in thinking about your treatment. And tips for healthcare providers on this are always ask about vaping in patients presenting with a pulmonary complaint. As well, the Government of Canada is stressing to healthcare providers to report severe lung illness that are thought to be related to vaping to your local public health authority. 
And you want to use this national case definition of uh, vaping-associated lung disease when you do this. So to have a confirmed case of vaping-associated lung illness, the patient has to have a history of vaping in the last 90 days. They have to have a pulmonary infiltrate, such as opacities on a plain film chest x-ray or ground glass opacities on a CT. And they have to have an absence of a pulmonary infection on their initial workup. So you can't think that they have pneumonia. As well, they have to have evidence in their medical records of an alternative plausible diagnosis. If you have a patient that fits that category, call your local public health representative and let them know that you think you might have a case of vaping-associated lung disease. Interesting. There's been a lot of hype about this. And what I've come to understand, at least so far from the pathophysiology, it appears to be like almost like a chemical pneumonitis related to something that they're not sure contained within the vapor, if you like. I'm not sure. Uh, neat. Well, that's important public service message as well. So definitely good stuff. My good stuff this week, Emily, is entitled Meta-Analysis Metastases. I wish I came up with that title because it's so cool. What a tongue twister. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Not my tongue twister. It was published in JAMA this past week, and it was an editorial on a study that looked at the estimated number of annual published systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which found that these have increased by approximately 2,700% from 1991 to 2014. And just for comparison, that has far outpaced the 150% increase in annual publications across all PubMed index articles between 1991 and 2014. The conclusion, nearly one review is now published for every randomized trial. It's like, how can we keep meta-analyzing things if we're matching the number of trials with meta-analyses? No kidding, we're going to have meta-analyses of meta-analyses. Yeah, and network meta-analyses of network meta-analyses. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, great hearing your voice as always, Emily, and thank you for bringing those two articles. I think they're very important to learn about and hear about, and hopefully the Freilich brothers give us some more airtime in the future. I agree. It was great being back on the show with you, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.